Jude. This is the book just before Revelation. So if you're having trouble finding it, find it just go to Revelation. It's the one right before it. And we'll be reading all of Jude. Before we hear God's word read, let's go to him asking for his help in understanding and applying this text. Our God, in your light do we see light, even the light that illumines hard truths, and we pray that you would cause us to see your word here, the truthfulness of your word, for your glory, and amen. Hear now the word of God. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called Beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their, on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The story is one of biblical proportions because it is found, well, in the Bible. The story of Jacob and Esau. There's not enough time to tell the whole story, but when you read the book of Genesis, you might feel like God is trying to pull a fast one on you, that he is perhaps on a mission to confuse you. And why do I say this? Simply put, when you read about Jacob and Esau, one sure seems to be the better and his name is not Jacob. But as we read scripture, we know that God makes a nation out of Jacob. He calls him Israel. He gives him 12 sons who become the 12 tribes who then inherit his promised land. But Jacob deceived his brother into getting the better inheritance. We recognize in the narrative he was quite the rascal, quite the deceiver. And when Esau had a chance to end his brother's life for good, tears were shed instead. Later, Old Testament and New Testament testimony further adds to perhaps this confusion. Esau's people, the Edomites, go their own way and they do not receive the covenantal blessings that Jacob and his people received. In fact, in Malachi, God says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And Paul, in the most controversial chapter of all that he has written, in Romans 9, uses that text in Malachi to prove to the Christians in Rome that God is both just and merciful in his plan of salvation, and that God ultimately is the sovereign one. And so no one on his own can lay a claim to the saving benefits that come from God, God alone. We're left Marveling, we're left asking ourselves, who are we, O mere men, to answer back to God? And we see in the story of Jacob and Esau the happy truth that Jacob was saved, that he was elected unto eternal life. For this, we rejoice. But we also see the hard truth that Esau was not, that he was a vessel chosen not for honorable use, for dishonorable use. It is this same duo of truths that we see here in Jude's letter, and we must be prepared to accept both. Indeed, God's people receive the hard and happy truths of God's purpose. It is not uncommon for someone who has mixed news to come to you and say, well, which do you want first? Do you want the good news or the bad news, the hard news? And if we had a choice, we would say, perhaps I want the good news. That will help ease the difficulty of the bad news. Others will say, no, 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 give me the bad news first, and then I can swallow the bad news down with the good news. Well, you don't get a choice here. I'm choosing for you to lead with the bad news, to lead with the hard news of the doctrine of reprobation. 
If you're visiting here with us today, this is not a doctrine that we preach every single Lord's Day, but it is a hard and is a hard truth, but it is one of which we are not ashamed because God is not ashamed of it. Remember the context in Jude's letter. Some people have crept into the church unnoticed, and they are wreaking havoc on the ungodly or on the godly because they themselves are ungodly to the core. That's what we saw last week, that everyone, apart from the grace of God, is totally depraved, wicked to the core, ungodly to the very center. And that depravity, that wickedness, makes everyone unable in himself, from himself, to come to Christ for salvation, something Outside of him must happen. Grace from above must fill his soul. Jude speaks of these people, these false teachers, as following the rebels of old, the likes of Cain and Korah, Sodom and Gomorrah, and and Balaam. The ungodly in Jude's day were running with the wrong crowd, or you could say they were the wrong crowd. They were the ones who were corrupting Good morals. They were the bad company, corrupting good morals. And these people, Jude goes on to describe, are rather fearlessly sneaky and greedy in their ways. Jude provides many concrete images to help us to understand their godlessness. He calls them hidden reefs. They are the reefs below the surface of the water. The unnoticed rocky hazards that threaten to shipwreck the faith of the godly. These are false shepherds. They care only for themselves, what they can gain from the sheep. They do not have a care for the sheep, except for what they can eke out of the sheep for their own gain. These are waterless clouds and fruitless trees. Like many politicians, they promise a lot, but do not deliver, either because they have no intention of delivering, or they are incompetent or unable to make good on their promises. Oh, how often have our farmers prayed for rain, have looked upward to the Carolina sky, seen the dark clouds, and joyfully anticipated that much-needed life for their land, only to be disappointed. How often have we planted fruit trees, expressing, expecting crisp apples and sweet cherries, only for that tree to be like that figless Israel that did not bear fruit in its season. The ungodly have people pouring into their offices, seeking answers, seeking truth, only to be fed lies, deception. They promised life, but they delivered the people this life, really, as plates of death. We have a confused people. We have a despairing people. People looking for answers. And they might go to the wrong people. Might go for truth and find falsehood. This is to be expected from those who are twice dead. They are not truly attached to the vine. They are not truly attached to Christ. They are not rooted and established in the Son of God. And so they do not bear fruit. And they cannot help anyone bear fruit because they are fruitless, hypocritical, 
godless, wicked. They are wild waves of the sea. Peter quotes Isaiah 57, The ungodly, the, the wicked, are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. Its, its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace for the wicked. Always their souls are chaotic. For the waters of chaos are always upon them. The condemnation abides on them. They cannot offer peace. What they offer instead is false peace. What they offer is not truth, but lies and moral lies. As God multiplies his grace and mercy to his people, these false teachers are multiplying error upon error, lie upon lie, false peace upon false peace. These godless false teachers are wandering stars. They They are not that north star that guides. They're not that star of Bethlehem that leads the people to the Savior. They wander, and so they lead others astray. And before I say this next thing, this hard thing, we must pause and consider this people's ungodliness. They're following their own sinful desires. That's what we established last week. They have perverted the grace of God into sensuality and denied the only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They are all about themselves. Every sinner, apart from the grace of God, is always about himself. Always seeking gain for himself. Always playing all the angles for himself. What can I get? Not what can I give? So what do we expect from a people who are led by their own sin? We expect that as sin leads them, it leads them to the wages of sin. It leads them to what they deserve, which is death. As they rely on themselves as the ultimate authority... They are then leading themselves to hell. Truly the Lord who hates wickedness, who abominates evil, cannot be accused of forcing these ungodly to hell. We cannot bring a charge against God. Say, you, O Lord, are the author of evil. Though you use evil, you, Lord, are not a sinner. You cannot look upon evil with any kind of favor, with any kind of delight. But these ungodly, they love themselves. They love, of course, they don't call it sin. They call it perhaps freedom. Just living day to day. It's enjoying the day, seizing the day. This is these are things they call it. But in reality, it is a self-guidance to eternal punishment. Their ways are woeful. And that is why Jude, as we saw last week in verse 11, says, Woe to them. In the spirit of his Savior and his Lord, 
He pronounces a woe upon all the ungodly who never bend the knee to Christ. The Lord, we're told, long ago designated the ungodly to eternal condemnation. Long ago? How long, we ask? Well, God has no plan B. He has decreed whatsoever comes to pass from before the foundation of the world. Therefore, this condemnation was long ago designated as far back as eternity. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And oh, what a day of trouble that great day of judgment will be for the wicked, for the ungodly. He has reserved, he has long ago designated them for that day. This is the scripture's hard teaching, true teaching on reprobation. Not only were they long ago designated, but this place was reserved for them. As Romans 9, 22 and 23 say, God eternally willing to show his wrath and power. God wills to show his wrath. He wills to show his power. He made vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Who prepared this place for destruction? We don't want to give Satan too much credit. He did not prepare this place of destruction. Who prepared this place? Who prepared these vessels but the maker of heaven and earth? The maker even, yes, of hell. Hell is not the creation of Satan. It is the fit place for all the ungodly, for all who do not bend the knee to Christ. And because it is where justice is carried out for all eternity, it is good that it was made. These hard truths must strike their hearers with terror and humility. Terror for the ungodly and humility for the godly. We know that we cannot scare anyone into heaven. That's the wrong motive to to flee to Christ just because you want to avoid flames of eternal hellfire. No, your nature must be changed. But this does not mean that that the destination of those who do not trust in Jesus is not utterly terrifying. It is utterly horrifying. It is completely terrifying that there is a place of eternal torment. And this place has been long ago designated long ago, reserved forever. We trust that the Lord can couple terrors with comfort to, on the one hand, wake up the ungodly, to say, this is where you will be if you do not repent. And then here is the remedy. Here is Christ. Here is grace. Here is mercy. The Lord has provided a way of avoiding ceaseless anguish. 
Now, if you are right now the ungodly, you are not meant to respond to these words, throwing your hands up and say, well, I guess nothing can be done about it. I am now ungodly, I am now an unbeliever, and will apparently forever be. And so why believe? Well, we do not know who the reprobate are. We do not know exactly all those for whom the Lord has reserved eternal condemnation. We don't know these people exactly. We don't have perfect knowledge of this. If you considered Paul's life when he was making that journey on the Damascus Road that morning, you would say, well, clearly God has made Paul's reservation for hell. Surely this guy is headed to eternal destruction. Oh, but how wrong we would be as God, by grace, knocks him to his knees. As as God illumines his darkened mind. Let us not cast with our judgments, cast the elect into hell. You do not know whether that person is elect or not. The Lord does not give you that privilege. As some have said, it is not like this light bulb that goes off above the person's head. They don't radiate green or something like that. That you say, oh, well, that's elect, and, and, he, and he's not, so I'll give the gospel to him and not to this person. The Lord doesn't operate that way. He hasn't called you to identify that, uh, make that distinction. And if you are the ungodly right now, how do you know you're not elect? Do not cast yourself into hell before the time comes. But rather trust in Jesus. The call there goes out to everyone. Come to him. Find rest, not woe for your souls. If you are weary, if you are heavy laden, if you have the burden of your sin, give it to Christ. He has died for sin. He has died for sinners, and he is the most fit Savior. He is the only Redeemer of God's elect, and you will know if you are elect, if you trust in Jesus. Humility becomes the godly as well. Our faith is tested when we come to a hard truth like this, isn't it? And some of us might be tempted to say, oh, I, will, I will never believe in a God like that. I will never believe in a God who long ago designated for condemnation the ungodly, who forever reserved a place for their eternal destruction. I will never believe in a God like that. Well, then you don't believe in the God of the Bible. Rather than have that posture of pride, of relying on your own authority of what you believe is the word, is the truth. Come to the Lord's words with humility, with submission. It's much better to believe the hard truth of God's word than errors with ease, with, than, than falsehoods with a false sense of comfort. 
Do we love the truth of God's Word, however hard and challenging it is, however difficult it is for our sinful hearts to accept? You may not have written God's story this way, but you are not the author of this story. Who are you, O oh man, to rewrite the, the perfect story that God has written? He needs no editor. Rather, we say, Lord, you are good, you are wise, you are holy, you are just. And this is a hard truth. Help me, O oh Lord, to believe it. Help me, O oh Lord, to accept it, to even accept it joyfully, however hard that would be to imagine. He is the infinite God whom we are not skilled to understand. Let us then Pray that we would grow in knowing him and his word and his ways. Whether it's this hard truth of reprobation or something else, we are all the time called to humility. You may have no struggle with the idea that some are predestined to eternal death. Though I imagine if you don't now have that struggle, you once did, as you are trying to work through these doctrines of grace, trying to see them in the scriptures. Because it is a difficult truth. But you might instead be struggling mightily with how God can still be good and in control or wise, loving, given your present trial. Given whatever that is, a broken relationship, unending anxiety or trouble at work. Months of depression that don't seem to let up. Suffering with cancer. Processing trauma, you name it. It's a hard providence. It's a mysterious providence. And you might now be tempted to think, the Lord is not good. He is not with me. He is not in control. He is not wise. But the Lord's decree can be at once mysterious and marvelous. It can be at the same time hard to hear, but healthy for your soul. I know one very dear to my heart who has undergone uh, uh, surgery procedure for, for cancer. And it's been a hard road. It's been very rough on her. But the Lord, by his grace, has worked Over the years, over the decades, his sovereignty into her heart, his goodness, his presence into her heart, that she even looks at her own cancer and says, this is good for me. The Lord is good. The Lord's still in control. And the Lord has even given this cancer as a platform to speak about his grace to others. The Lord uses anything, everything, hard truths to highlight his grace, to highlight his love. We must always then come to the Lord's word with this posture, willing to receive these hard truths. And we've ripped off the band-aid of bad news. We've exposed the pus. We've exposed the dead flesh. And now we can apply the salve, the anointment, the ointment of this anointed one, Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus from the Father. 
We've eaten some of the meat of Jude's letter, but we have not yet tasted its appetizer found in verses 1 and 2. This appetizer of a greeting is really the substance of what prepares the reader for this hearty meal to contend for the faith, once and for all delivered to the saints. We see in verses 1 and 2, again, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. We see in these verses and elsewhere that the people he's writing to are called. They are beloved. They are made to be at peace. They are called saints. And so we have to ask, who called them? Who loved them? Who brought about peace? Who called them saints? How is it that they are called and loved and and made to be at peace? How is it they are called saints? Saints, surely they are called by the voice of the Father. Surely they are loved by the crucified and risen Son. Surely they are made to be at peace with the Father through Him who is our peace, even Jesus Christ. Surely these saints, these holy ones, have been set apart by the Holy Spirit that they might be devoted to Him. These who are called and beloved in God, receive mercy and peace and love, and that multiplied. He who calls his image bearers to be fruitful, multiply and to fill the earth, acts in divine character here as he multiplies his infinite love, peace, and mercy in us and through us. Dear ones, our spiritual days begin with a full breakfast, an energizing lunch to keep us plowing through the days of sorrow a tasty snack to get us to dinner, and a relaxing and rich supper to enjoy the evening, and even a fine dessert to sweeten our souls in reflection on the Lord of mercy, of grace, of peace, of love. This is not a one-time gift of love from the Father, though that is more than we deserve. This is not a one-time drop of mercy from the Father though a drop of mercy is more than our sinful lot. This is not a one-time instance of peace from the Father. Oh, but that would certainly be a relief, would it not? it's, It's mercy, and then more mercy. And when you need more mercy, more mercy is coming from behind. It's love, and then more love. And when you need more love, more love meets you in the morning. It's peace, and then more peace. And when you need more peace, more peace restores your relationships. Peace and love and mercy. Mercy, love, and peace multiplied to you from the boundless stores of God in heaven. This is what you get. And we would do well to ask this question that is heard in, in homes everywhere. But why? If you're a parent, you have heard that question probably 12 times today. Like a teenager given his first car, stunned by his parents' gift, we say, for me? But well, Why? Why are we called? Why are we loved? Why are we made to be at peace? Why are we named saints? What did we do? 
Wrong question. Not, what did we do? What did he do? What did he do? If it was you who put yourself in this state of grace, then we must change Jude's final words. Now to you, dear ones, to you, people of God, who are able to keep yourselves from stumbling and to present yourselves blameless before the presence of the glory with great joy, scratch out only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. To you, the one and only you, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time and now and forever. Amen. To you be the amen. May it never be. Maybe I just contributed a little bit. Oh, certainly Jesus did most of it. But I believed. Oh, of course you did. When it was granted to you to believe. But I repented. Yes, of course you did. If you don't repent, if you don't believe, you're not saved. But who gave you that gift of repentance? It was the Lord. belongs to the Lord. You get no shred of glory. You contributed nothing but your sin, nothing but your ungodliness, nothing but your wickedness. Jude knew this multiplied grace, this love, this peace, this calling, this common salvation. Although he was the youngest of Jesus' brothers, remember, he was still not a believer in his older brother during Jesus' earthly ministry. He joined his brothers in mocking the Christ. He joined his brothers in calling the Christ insane, saying that he had a demon, that he was possessed, that he was of the evil one. Remember his brothers tried to bring him home because they thought he was crazy? And it was wreaking insanity on the people. Come on, Jesus, let's just go home. Jude was among them. But his spirit was knocked out of the kingdom of darkness through the resurrection power of the Son's kingdom light. And because of this powerful grace, Jude does not refer to himself as Jesus' brother. He doesn't take that title upon himself. I am Jesus' brother. No, he calls himself the brother of James, but a servant, a slave of the Lord's. Because he knows his need. He knows his dependence on the grace of God. He knows that Jesus didn't have to save his half-brothers. He knew that. They did not deserve salvation, just like anyone else. We do not receive this eternal grace through biology. The blood that runs through our veins is mixed with the poison of our dead spirits. One of the shocking lessons that we learn from reading a bit of John Calvin's letters is that he was involved quite intimately with matchmaking. You've you've thought of him, no doubt, as a reformer, as a great reformer, as a great theologian, as a great churchman, but you ever think of him as one who tries to match people with one another to get married. He was greatly invested in in this pursuit. He was called upon by many to help find just the right fit. And he offered his own services to help others 
Calvin, did you not have anything else to do? But he thought it was very important. And at times, social, economic, educational compatibility entered Calvin's calculus for marital matchmaking. He, he didn't throw out beauty and love either as, as important contributing factors for a marriage. But he didn't major on those. Foremost in Calvin's mind were piety and modesty. The woman must be devoted to God. Evidence of God's grace in a woman's life was essential for Calvin in order to recommend her to a dear friend of his. This was the kind of woman for whom Calvin earnestly sought on behalf of his bereaved friend, Pierre Verey, who had lost his wife and he was languishing at home. Calvin writes him a letter and says, Come to me, brother, and spend some time with me. Meanwhile, I will seek diligently a wife for you. And he had one right in mind, perfect fit. Although others disagreed because they were majoring on rank and he was majoring on piety and modesty. As it turns out, Beret found his own wife for himself and Calvin participated in the wedding. But it was right for Calvin to approach life in this way, to approach marriage in this way. It is right for us when we seek a spouse to look for those who are pious, those who are modest, those who love the Lord over anyone. That is what we should look for. That's the primary contributing factor, is it not? Does this person love Jesus? Is this person committed to Christ in all of his or her ways? But this is not the way God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit approached us. God did not look for evidence of grace, of our own goodness, to match with us. If there would be evidence of grace, it would have to be put there by God himself at the wedding and after the wedding. If God had waited for us to be attractive, he would be waiting for all eternity. In fact, if you read Ezekiel 16, we know the story about how he chose Israel. It was he who beautified her. It was he who gave her all that she could ever ask for or imagine. And she prostituted herself to others. But what did he see at the beginning? He saw her wallowing in her blood, and he said in her blood, Live! He gave her life. He gave her grace. He joined himself to her by grace. That is what Christ does for the church. Christ shed his own blood for the church. The church that was formerly the world. Formerly at enmity with the Christ. Now brought into this kingdom, this relationship of multiplied love and peace and mercy. What does this marvelous grace from so magnanimous a Savior move us to but humble praise to God for this infinite grace that we are not worthy to receive. We know that he would be just to have designated us to condemnation, to have reserved for us gloomy chains under eternal punishment. 
Doesn't this grace bring you to your knees? What does this marvelous grace from so magnanimous a Savior move us to but humble proclamation of the same? It is this grace that we proclaim to others. It is this grace that we remind ourselves of daily. It is this grace that we are praying for in the lives of those who have not demonstrated by grace their their calling. All hope is not lost. Pray. Pray fervently for them. Proclaim the grace of God. We humbly praise God and proclaim God, knowing that He will do all His holy will to the praise of His glorious grace and for the eternal good of all His people. Such a happy truth that we heartily receive. Let us pray. Our gracious, sovereign God, we have heard the hard truth of the doctrine of reprobation and also the happy truth of your election unto eternal life. And Lord, we marvel and we are humble. Transform us, Lord, more and more to appreciate this grace, to appreciate your word as authoritative, as true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.